kindness. At peace together as disciples and community, we've been focusing on what does it look like to live at peace together as as we do this mission we have together, as we as we're disciples who are trying to grow as disciples and make disciples. What does it look like to live at peace together? So we've been in the middle of this little mini series. We started the first week of May. We'll be wrapping up the next few weeks. And then for those of you who are wondering what's next, the book of Ephesians is what's next. And then followed, oh yay, I'm glad you're happy about that. Thank you, Judy. That's wonderful. And then after the book of Ephesians, we're looking further out. We're going to begin the book of Acts after that. So start reading in the book of Ephesians. I believe God will help us together. Well, the reason we've been then going through this series on living at peace together as disciples and community is, is because we, we really believe that God wants to help us all grow. We, we need to grow as disciples, and He wants to help us be more effective and um, so we can be used by Him in a greater way in our community and in, in the lives of others around us. One of the biggest barriers, though, to the effectiveness of a local church, to the, to the health of a local church, is disunity, though. It's conflict. And whenever you have changes, whenever you have life changes, whenever you have changes in a church, whenever you have changes in relationships, there's always potential for disunity, for um, conflict. So many churches today are affected by conflict, and they fall apart by unresolved conflict. I was reading uh, from the Peacemaker Ministries, I want to share a few few statistics with you. They were were saying that 25% of of all the churches that they surveyed reported significant conflict in the previous five years that was serious enough to have lasting and ongoing impact on congregational life. That's 25% of the churches, one in four churches. That's a significant number. There are approximately 19,000 major, 19,000 major scarring church conflicts in the U.S. every year. That's just, that's not a minor number. 19,000 scarring conflicts in a church every year, every year. Thanks, thanks be to God we've not experienced that. There's, there's not open disunity. There's not uh, problems in our church. So this isn't a series to address open problems or difficulties or conflict. No, this is a preventative measure so that we can be even more successful and grow even more as disciples so that we can be effective in carrying out the mission he has for us to, to make disciples. We don't want to be hindered by really be becoming a statistic like so many other churches. 32% of born-again Christians who've been married have gone through a divorce. Virtually the same percentage that our general population. 34%, this is a little over one in three, of all pastors presently serve congregations that had forced out their previous pastor to resign over conflict. It's, it's, not, it's not unknown to the, to the church in America. The seven primary reasons for forced exits all involved some form of conflict. That's not, that's not including people who are forced out for immorality or other, other right reasons. This is 34% were forced out because of conflict, unresolved conflict. It's estimated that the cost of people who profess to be born-again Christians filing lawsuits against others who profess to be born-again Christians is approximately $40 billion a year in lawsuits. Conflict is all around us. It's not just out there. There's opportunities for conflict all the time here. It's estimated that 61% of church members leave their church. A little conflict happening right there. It's excellent. <laughs> it's teasing. Um, 
I had conflict this morning. It was great. Um, it's estimated that 61% of church members, they leave their church because of unresolved conflict. Not just differences in theology, not just differences of opinion, not just differences in beliefs, or we hold these convictions differently. No, this is 61% of people leave their churches because of unresolved conflict. So you have to ask, okay, what causes all this conflict? What's, what's the cause of unresolved conflicts in the church today? Is it jealousy? Is it, is it bitterness? Is it resentment? Is it unforgiveness? Maybe it's lying and deceit. Maybe it's insidious gossip, or maybe there's, there's slander and dissension. Maybe it's grumbling and complaining, the little more subtle things, right? That spreads like a cancer throughout and causes suspicion and doubt and disunity. Maybe it's unaddressed sin that's left unconfronted. Maybe it's just, maybe it's more simple things like people assuming the motives of other people or continual lack of kindness towards each other. Maybe it's just careless words. You ever, you ever have careless words? Careless words spoken that that bitterness grows and we presume other people's motives, other people's thoughts. Maybe it's, it's things like just being condescending when someone doesn't do things the way you like them or when they don't do things right. The way we think they should, right? Because the way we think they should do things it is the right way. I mean, that's, that's always true. <laughs> the problem is you're full of a room of people that all think their way is the right way to do things. So there's, there's some really ripe opportunities for conflict. Maybe it's just being judgmental and self-righteous because somebody else, they have a preference or a conviction that you disagree with. And it's a preference or conviction that you don't, you don't like, you disagree with. And that's, that's an opportunity for conflict. Now all these are actually, can be used for the glory of God and be God-given opportunities to, to grow in Him. Why does God allow conflict in church? Because He wants us to grow. He wants us to change. He wants us to be like Him, not like we are. He wants us to be more like He is. Maybe it's just simple things like misunderstandings that grow larger in life. Then maybe, maybe it's all of those things. The reality is that any one of these things can potentially lead to unresolved conflict. Now, if you've been walking through our series, not only Sunday mornings, but in our small groups, we've been going through a series called Resolving Everyday Conflict, and you realize that conflict is just an opportunity to honor God, to glorify God. It, 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 it's, it's inevitable in life. It doesn't have to be unresolved, but I would propose there's, there's one thing that's necessary to resolve conflict. There's one thing that's really necessary that, that is the lack of it is the cause of all unresolved conflicts. It's not just these, these little things, these little opportunities, these misunderstandings, yes, but all of those things are resolvable if we have love for one another. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. The reality is we can, we can all learn techniques about how to resolve conflict and we can grow in, how do I understand other people? How can I learn how to resolve conflicts biblically? But if we don't have love for one another, inevitably all of those efforts will fail. So let's read God's Word. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 7. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would Make my words effective this morning. Lord, I am in need of you. Lord, we are all in need of you. Father, I pray that you would give us the gift of your Holy Spirit. That you would enable me to preach this morning and you would empower your words. Lord, that your words would make us alive. That you would open up our hearts and our minds that we might hear from you. And Lord, I pray that you would enable us to understand what your love is. And God, that we would love you and love others in return. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if there's one passage that's used in, in almost every wedding I've ever been to, it's, it's probably this, right? You've, you've been to a wedding, you've heard about how love is all these things, and that's good and right application of the passage. It's, it's good to apply a passage like this to marriage. It's good to apply a passage like this to interpersonal relationships. But there wasn't the original context of the passage The original context of the passage is to a church that was divided. A church that was experiencing all kinds of disunity. They were experiencing disunity over preferences. They were experiencing disunity over what they ate. They were actually Christians suing other Christians. Remember that stat that I read to you about $40 million every year? People who profess to be born-again Christians suing other born-again Christians. Well, this is not a new thing. In the church in Corinth, there were people suing fellow brothers and sisters in the church, without first going to those who God provided to give wisdom from His Word. They were looking externally for hope to resolve their conflicts. There, there were people having all kinds of differences, and, and they were looking down on each other if they were, some were poor or some were rich, and they were boasting about their gifts. And, and this particular passage comes in the context of Paul's correcting them for excesses. And he's correcting them for thinking that they're really special because they're gifted. Because they have these spiritual gifts, because they have these gifts given by God, then, then they must be really special. And they become arrogant and they've begun boasting. And that's, that's led to conflict in their churches. And at one point he says, your, your services, they do more harm than good. When you get together, it's not good. You might as well not meet. <laughs> Thanks be to God he doesn't say that about our church. When we get together, it's, we experience the kindness of God. The mercy of God. But but lest we think that we're above this kind of conflict, remember, this was a church that was it was planted by the Apostle Paul. Look, I, I'm not the Apostle Paul. I'm not anywhere near as gifted as him. I never will be. But the reality is, someone that gifted with that much discernment and wisdom who's establishing, he probably built the church very well. He probably put just the right leaders in place. He had a special anointing by God as an apostle to do that. And yet this church, a few years after he left, really devolved into this kind of infighting and conflict and troubles and unresolved sin. 
People weren't confronting other people's sins. So there was sexual immorality in the church and it was going unresolved and they were letting it happen. And so that led to conflict and they lost sight of what was most important and they were magnifying all these gifts, but they were forgetting really the most important thing. So Paul says, I want to show you a better way than, than the gifts. So I want you to eagerly desire spiritual gifts and that's a desire for our church as well. We want to eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, but more importantly, we want to Keep loving one another. And we want to make sure we exercise those gifts in the context of love so that we don't go to the place of the church in Corinth. Because it's so easy to get there. I know that how fast I can get into a conflict with my wife when I get up in the morning and everything seems to be going fine until she does something I don't like. Or that it's not my preference. Or maybe one of my kids comes screaming in my room at five in the morning and that's... That's a that's a chance for me to re, kind of react and get upset and get angry and I need to endure those times and I need scriptures like this to remind me to bring me back to the place where I see what does it look like what's most important how, how do we how do we avoid conflict in the church there was grumbling in the church in Corinth people had elevated their preferences to the place of idolatry it seems from the more immediate context that. These gifts, they, they had elevated the gifts of speaking in tongues and they thought that, you know, if you can, if you can speak in tongues, that's the greatest gift of all because maybe it's, you can speak with the voice of angels. Paul says, yeah, okay, you have that, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. It, it's meaningless. So he tells the church, look, look down your, in your Bible. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul's saying that you have these gifts and they are great gifts. I want to encourage the development of these gifts. I want to encourage you pursuing these gifts. And I don't want to discourage just because you've abused the gifts. But I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that the gifts are not the most important way that we relate to each other in the body of Christ. It's not that they're insignificant, but they're not the most important thing. And if you're exercising your gifts without love, he's saying it makes you about as pleasant to the harmony of the church as a noisy gong would be in the middle of of a beautiful Mozart piece. Can you imagine you're listening to Mozart and you're you're kind of carried away in the in the moment, and all of a sudden this gong hits? It would be disruptive. It wouldn't sound good. It would it would be odd. It would be loud. It would wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be peaceable. And he's saying, when you exercise your gifts in the body of Christ and you don't have love in the way you're exercising them, no matter how great your gifts are, it's like a noisy gong. Could you imagine if somebody on Sunday morning, this morning, was hitting a, a gong every once in a while. So one of you came in, you have this big gong in the back and you're just waiting for a quiet moment. Boom, you hit it. It would just, it would be disruptive. It would be out of place. It wouldn't be good. And Paul's saying, when you exercise your gifts like that, when you kind of spring your gifts on other people, Without loving them, without it being out of a motive of love, it, it comes across like a noisy gong. It's about as helpful to the harmony and peace of the church as a gong would be. I, I really enjoy drums, really benefiting from drums this morning. And uh, about 20 years ago, I used to play the drums. And I used to have this massive drum set that wrapped all the way around me. It went from, it was back in the 80s when this was popular. And so you had drums that went from here all the way around to here. And I had this little hole I could kind of, kind of walk in. I sit down and they had the, all these symbols all over the place. And I, I, I love kind of, you know, when it, when it's, when the drums are played well in appropriate proportions, it all sounds good. But if you're just to take the back end of your drum set, you can just wail on one of the symbols really hard right in the middle. It kind of makes this loud clanging noise. 
And it's, it's not harmonious. It's not good music. It doesn't enhance or help anything. And he's saying it's like a clanging cymbal. It's not just a gong. It's like a clanging cymbal. It, it's not useful and it's not carried out in love and it's not, you're not thinking through. How am I, how am I going to affect other people in the way I'm doing this? It's like you're just saying, well, I'm just going to hit the cymbal whenever I want. I'm just going to exercise my gifts in the way that I feel like I should, not in the way that's actually going to serve people, that's going to love people. Because I need to, I need to share my gifts. No, you need to love more than you need to share your gifts. And so, Paul is saying, even if we're incredibly gifted and we speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but if we don't have love, we'd be like that in the body. It'd be unpleasant and distracting, unhelpful. You know, in Corinth, and really to, often today, the gifts that God gives to people can be an opportunity for division or disunity. They can, they can lead to things like uh, discontentment with the gifts that you have because you want the gifts that somebody else has. Or they can lead to jealousy. Because you think that somebody else has been blessed by God in a different way. They can lead to resentment. They can lead to envy. Even the good things that God gives us can be opportunities, really, for conflict, for troubles in the church. So what does it have to do with our church? I think, well, we can be the same way. We can be subtly jealous of other people in the church. You ever experienced that? We're just subtly jealous of somebody else because they have a gift that you really like, and you're like, God, why didn't you give me that gift? Why can't I be like that person? There can be resentment. There can be envy. That affects the way that we relate to those people. You can either distance yourself from them or you just kind of come at them judging other people. I think at times we don't want to admit it, but it's, it's true that we can resent that God didn't give us certain gifts or abilities or skills. Other of us think, maybe, maybe there's some of us that we think that because we have a certain gift or skill that we're better than somebody else. And that affects how we relate to them. And then on the flip side, maybe, maybe we think they're just not as mature as us because they don't have the same gifts that we do. And so that can lead to all kinds of division and disunity. And so Paul's addressing that church, and I believe he's addressing our church as well, both the sins of jealousy and pride. We can think we're better than others. And we can think that God God didn't give us those gifts, so we, we're not as good because we don't have those things. And this, it, It's all revealing a lack of love. It comes from, from not understanding and applying God's love for us in our own lives. Not seeing God's great love for us. And so Paul goes on to verse 2, and he goes on to put the greatest spiritual gifts in perspective. He says, if I have prophetic powers... If, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Now that's pretty impressive. All mysteries and all knowledge. How many of us here understand all mysteries and all knowledge? There's not one of us who does. But it's all saying, even if you understood absolutely everything there was to know. If you made Einstein look like a fool. If you understood all mysteries, all things that are hard to understand. If you had all knowledge. And then he goes on from there. He says, if I have all faith. So as to remove mountains. How many of you removed a mountain lately? I mean, you know, that's, it doesn't happen very often. Now God, in His kindness, does give the gift of faith, and we've seen people healed of illnesses and different things in the church here. But if you have this faith where you can say something and a mountain's removed, and He says, you have all these things, but I have not love, He doesn't just say it amounts to nothing, He doesn't say that it's, those gifts are nothing. He says, if I have not love, look down at verse 2. He says, if I have not love, I am nothing. I am nothing. 
If I don't have love, I am nothing. I amount to nothing. I'm, I'm worthless. No matter how great I think I am, if I don't love, all my gifts amount to nothing if I don't have love. Then in verse 3, he ratchets it up a few more notches and he goes on to the extreme and he says, if I give away everything that I have, you know, maybe, maybe you, you can become the, the Christian Bill Gates and have this foundation and give away millions and millions of dollars and how great would that be? But he says, if I give away all that I have and if I deliver my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. T- today it's really popular to talk about Giving to the poor. It's, ta- it's popular to talk about social justice. It's, in fact, as a church, it's something that we do want to grow in. We want to grow in, in reaching out to the poor. We want to grow in, in exercising social justice. That's not evangelism itself, though. Although it is a part of the strategy to really to preach the gospel and love the unlovely by practically showing them the love of Christ and caring for their needs. But Paul is saying, no matter how great you are, no matter how much you do, No matter how much social justice you carry out, no matter how much you give away, if you're not giving it out of a motive to truly love, you gain nothing. If we aren't loving the way we give, if our motives are not to love others and love God through our giving and through our serving and through our reaching out to the poor, there's no eternal gain. He says you can actually sacrifice your body for somebody else. And if you don't do it out of love, you can pay the ultimate price of our lives. But it'll still be no eternal gain if we don't do it out of love. You may think about it. Radical Muslims give their lives every day around the world for their cause. But they don't have love for God. They don't have love for each other. And it gains nothing. And in the same way, just if we're giving our lives, but we're not motivated by loving God, and loving other people is just as worthless. It gains nothing. Just because we do the right things, even the most extreme things that maybe seem altruistic or seem like the ultimate good, it doesn't mean we're doing them out of motive to love God and love others. And I believe that God would actually have us kind of inspect our own motives and say, why, why am I doing these things? Am I doing these things to get back from other people in the church? Am I serving so that they'll serve me? Am I reaching out to somebody else so they'll reach out to me? Am I taking an interest in somebody else so that they'll take an interest in me? Or am I doing this because I want to love them freely like Christ has loved me freely? Because you see, when we love people or when we reach out to people in those ways, when we do things for people in those ways and it doesn't get reciprocated, what happens? We get angry. We get upset. We feel resentment builds. Nobody reaches out to me. We just reach out to everybody else. We, we have everybody else over for dinner, but nobody asks me over to their house for dinner. I watch other people's kids, but nobody watches my kids. You know, I was kind to them. I did something for them, but they didn't do anything for me. Well, that's the, that's the kind of actions that Paul's saying. If you don't have love, it, it amounts to nothing. We didn't expect our motives to say, are, are we really being loving? Because if not, we're going to be actually demanding that people give to us. Instead of saying, you know what, because Jesus has been so kind to us. Because he came and gave when really we didn't deserve a thing. He came and gave us life. He came and lived in our place. And because of that, we want to be like him. We just, we want to love him in return. We want to love other people. No matter what happens, no matter if somebody else blesses us or not. Paul goes on to talk about what love in the body of Christ looks like. He says, love is patient. Look down at verse 4 for a moment. Love is patient and kind. These are some challenging verses, aren't they? 
Love is patient, love is kind. He moves on from the way that we exercise the gifts that God's given. He moves on from the extraordinary actions. And now he just goes to more, the more mundane areas of life because really this is where we live, isn't it? We live, we live in the more mundane areas of life. He says, okay, I'm going to tell you about what love's like. It's, it's better than these huge gifts. These, if you have the gifts of tongues and you speak with men and angels and, and you have great prophetic powers and you have all the wisdom in the world. If you give everything up, you, you do all this good externally. But then he brings it down to our level as well where we, where we actually live day by day. And he says, love's patient. Love's kind. You know, you can normally only give away everything in your life maybe once or twice, right? But most of us live on a daily basis being confronted with, will we be kind to the people around us? Will we just be patient with the people in our lives? You know, when somebody else is telling a story and it's kind of going on, you ever, you ever had those moments? Maybe it's with me. Maybe it's right now. Um, when somebody's telling a story or they're kind of going on, you know, what are you thinking? Oh my gosh, I wish they would just shut up. Um, or are you... Or you are you saying, you know what, I'm going to be patient with them. I'm going to be, I'm going to be kind. I'm going to love them. And I'm actually going to make this discipline and effort to listen to what they're saying because I care about them. Not because it's interesting, but because I care about them. Do we love people enough to be patient and wait for them to finish? What if it's a dumb story or one that doesn't excite us? Some family members, they have this knack of, my, some of my family members have this knack of just telling these stories that have no point. I'm like, oh my goodness, that was 15 minutes wasted. I just, I, okay, thanks very much. That's not patience, that's not kindness. What if somebody in your life doesn't do things the way that you want, or if they take too long to do things, or they don't understand how to do something, and you have to show them? The question for us is, will we be patient? Will we be loving? Paul says, love is patient. I think about many times when I'm impatient with my own children when they're taking too long for my convenience. Now, I need to train them. I need to discipline them. I need to help them learn. I need to take those time to do things. But what often happens is what gets challenged is my convenience. What gets challenged is my own self-love. What gets challenged is my own laziness, really. And so when they're taking forever to do something, I'm like, come on! Could you speed it up, buddy? Come on. And there's some anger happening. That's a good moment, by the way. Um, when I'm, you know, don't yell or, or say something harsh or unkind. Am I patient with my wife at times when, when she does things just different than the way I want them or in the timing that I want? And I'm a, we can all be impatient with other people when we expect them to do something better or we think that we can do something better than them. We can be impatient. We can be self-righteous. And this impatience, it leads to all kinds of conflict, all kinds of problems in the church. We can get angry because somebody else is imposing upon our time, our agenda, our rights. I have to make an effort now. I have to go out of my way because these people are being lazy. If those people volunteered to serve in this area, if they just did what they say they were going to do, then I wouldn't have to come up and do it. You know, you can get impatient with people because they don't serve in the way they say they're going to serve. Or because maybe they offered to help you out and it actually was more of a hindrance than a help. Uh, and, and you can be impatient, impatient, unkind. You know, we can be impatient when we don't get our way and just snap at people. And, you know, maybe it looks like yelling at your kids or maybe it's just rolling your eyes like, oh my goodness, really? 
being harsh with your, your parents, your spouse, your friends, your classmates, your coworkers. Paul says love isn't like that. Love is patient. How many times have each one of us done something over and over again and still needed help? How many times have you, have you messed up the same thing? How many times have, as, have you needed God's forgiveness for the same silly things? You know, that a scripture I read earlier in Psalms 103, it says that he knows our frame. He knows that we're but dust. Is that the way that we think about other people? Do we realize that, you know what, they're but dust too? God's patient with us when we're but dust. So we need to love them because we've been loved by a God who is slow to anger and rich in love. How many times has God been patient with your foibles, your failings? You know, God's patient with us when we really should know better, when we take too long to do something, when you just fool around. You ever just fool around? You know you're fooling around. You ever just fool around and, and you, don't, you don't get to the things that you know God's calling you to do? You ignore his urging at times? You know, I'm thinking about Jesus' disciples. Jesus was like the ultimate picture of what patience looks like. Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm on the way to die, and on the third day I'll rise again. And his disciples are in the back and they're having this discussion. By the way, who do you think is the greatest? I'm like, really? I'd be rolling my eyes and be like, oh my goodness, really? You're talking about that? I'm telling you, I'm giving my life up and you're, you're wondering who's the greatest. None of you is the greatest, okay? I'm the greatest. Did you miss the point, maybe? I was just telling you, I'm going to die for you, give my life and be raised up again. Maybe I'm the greatest and you're talking about who's the greatest? It's not you. But he was patient and he was gentle with them. He corrected them, but he did it in a patient way, in a loving way, in a kind way. And he does that with us too. When, when we fail to trust God, he's not impatient with us and saying, come on, I'm the creator of the universe, don't you get it by now? No, he's patient with us, he's kind with us, he's merciful to us. He sends us reminders, you know, you can trust me, I love you, I'm here, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to fail you. He's patient with us. And it's not just patient, he says it's kind. And, and kindness is it's actively pursuing the good of somebody else. Kindness, it's carrying out those loving actions by doing things to bless the person that you are loving. And so the question for us is, are you seeking to be loving and kind? Are you seeking to carry out those kind actions on behalf of somebody else? Are you looking for ways to practically show your love? I, I remember... After we just rented a new home in Vancouver, we were really excited moving from the small apartment into a house and um, we had a couple kids and uh, we, we were just about to get there or moving our stuff over and I come over to the new house and I find that somebody's mowed my grass. Um, it's just little acts of kindness like that. I had the same thing happen here. Chris Sype, we're in between two different homes and um, he, he volunteered and came over and mowed our grass. And so many acts of kindness I can think of. There's so many people in the church here have been kind to us. So this isn't a corrective word, but it is a word to say, you know what? Let's continue on in what God's been at work doing in this church. One of the things I think that God has given to us as a church is is an understanding of what it looks like to love one another. Let's keep that on all the more. Continue on loving one another and kindness to one another. Let's spur each other on to love and good works. Why? So that we can grow in Him. So that we can make disciples. So that we can be faithful, fruitful in our mission together. Love is seen in all kinds of practical acts of kindness. 
You know, we've had people help paint in our house and we've had people help put flooring in and all kinds of different things. And it's, love is seen in practical acts of kindness like this. And I want to really commend you as a church and thank you for how you showed kindness to, to me and our family and to so many other people in the church. And keep it up. Keep it up. Why? It's a way that we can guard against division, guard against disunity. It's a way that we can preserve the unity of the local church. And it's a way that I, we can love God. We can honor God because He's been kind to us. We need to keep asking ourselves, are we kind to our spouse? Are we kind to our co-workers, our family, our children, our parents, our friends, our neighbors? If not, are we really loving those we say we love? What would kindness motivated by love look like? Well, it might look like going out of your way to do something for somebody else who's in need. It may like look like you have to get to know those people around you, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your siblings, enough to find out what would bless them and then show them the kindness, really, that you want to show them God's love. Maybe it looks like anticipating what would bless somebody else or, or thinking, okay, what, what does, do they prefer When we get together, I'm going to defer to their preferences, not because I like doing that or I like eating that or I like going to that place, but because I want to show love to them practically and be kind and be patient. You know, when somebody else likes going to a restaurant that's really lousy, that's okay. You can probably go along with them. It's a practical kindness. It could be something as simple as, you know, getting up and getting a drink for one of your family members when, you know, kids, if you see that. you're thirsty, get up and get a drink for your siblings. It could just be small, simple ways. The reality is that most of our lives are just lived in those mundane moments. And that's really, there's those moments that reveal, are we loving? Are we loving one another? Are we loving God? Has God's love so affected us that we're showing it to other people? Maybe it's picking flowers for your wife or doing the dishes without being asked or holding the door for somebody else. Whatever those things are, there's a thousand small ways every week that each and every one of us have to exercise love Like God has shown love to us. And God shows love to us in a thousand small ways too. We're just unaware of a lot of those ways. We're unaware of of the times when God is blessing us or sending people our way to encourage us or when he's keeping us from accidents or keeping us from harm. When he sends us a friend to encourage us or call and say, hey, I'm praying for you. That's the kindness of God. And it's God's kindness that, that leads all of us to repentance. And we can be a means of grace in somebody else's life to help them see God's kindness too. But love's not only patient and kind. Paul says in the second half of verse 4, look down in your, in your Bible, it says, love does not envy or boast. It doesn't envy what God has blessed somebody else with. And conversely, love doesn't boast about what God has blessed you with. You know, envy, it leads to all kinds of bitterness in the church. Bitterness against God and it leads to resentment of other people. If you're envious of somebody else, it's going to cause major difficulties with your relationship with them. You're going to resent them. You're not going to want to be around them. You're not going to like them. You're going to be judging them. And then both envy and boasting, really, they're just, they're just different signs of being self-centered and self-focused. Envy is being more aware of what others have, what you don't. It says, I want something. I need it in order for me to be happy. And why I'm not happy is because I don't have what they have. Maybe you could be envious about a home or a car or a spouse or friends or money or gifting or talents. It's the opposite, really, of loving God, though. It's selfishness and self-centeredness. And boasting is not any better either, though. Boasting says that God, God didn't make me the way I think He... God didn't make me the way that I am. He, he made, 
I made me the way I am. That God didn't give me these gifts or things. I got them on my own through my own abilities, my own talents. And when you're boasting of your abilities and talents, it says that really God didn't have anything to do with this. It's unloving to God and it's unloving to others as well. But Paul's not done. He, he goes on to say, love isn't arrogant or rude. Look down at verse 5. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. How many times has arrogance or rudeness led to conflict in your life? You know, when somebody else is arrogant, it, it makes you withdraw from them. It tempts you to not want to be around them. It's the same thing when we're being arrogant. When somebody's rude or it can be unpleasant and lead to others judging and hurt feelings. You know, something as simple as you know, just being rude when you're walking by somebody and not saying hello, that can get misinterpreted and people can take up offense. And it can lead to division. And Paul says in the latter parts of verse 5, he says, love, not only is it not arrogant or rude, he says, does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. If I insist on things being done my way, I'm setting myself up for severe disappointment. Because <laughs> God didn't make everybody else like me. That's good news, isn't it? Everybody can say amen. That's good. God didn't make everybody else like you. Not everybody does things the same way that you think things should be done. That's good. Because contrary to what you and I think, our own way is not always the best way. And it's not loving for us to insist on our own way. It's going to lead to irritation and resentment. What Paul says in, in, in verse 5 is that love's not, it's not self-seeking. Instead, it, it seeks the interest and the edification of other people. It doesn't insist on its own way. So let me ask you, where are you insisting on your own way and your relationships with other people in the church? Where are you insisting on your own way with your spouse, with your kids? Where are you insisting your own way with your friends? God wants to help us to love Him more, but not insisting on our own way, but saying, you know what? I want to I see what's most pleasing to Him. I'm going to lay down my preferences, lay down my desires, lay down my way of doing things because He laid down His preferences for me. Jesus laid down His life for me. He laid down all of the honor and glory that He deserved. And He took my place. Are we creatively, actively looking for ways that we can look out for the interests of others? So is, is a lot of our time spent thinking, you know what, how can I care for somebody else's needs? Because Jesus cares for me. Love is not just seen in our external actions. Though. Look down at verse 6. It says, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Have you ever been secretly happy when somebody else messes up? I mean, really, come on, be honest with yourself. Have you ever been secretly happy like, good, they got what was coming to them. They messed up and they got what they deserved. That's rejoicing with wrongdoing. I think most people have felt that way at times. You know, I can remember quite a few times when I've been cut off in traffic and driving down the road, that jerk, he got me up. And then a couple more miles later, he's pulled over on the side of the road. I'm like, yeah, all right, that's good. They drove recklessly. They got what they deserved. Love doesn't gloat over the failures of other people. We can do that in more subtle ways with people in the church. You're like, yeah, I'm glad that they failed. <sighs> it's about time because they thought they were perfect. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth of God. It says love doesn't take joy really in, any, in evil of any kind. Love is glad when the truth of God is revealed. And then verse 7, Paul finishes up praising what love is with some positive things. Look down your Bibles. He says... 
Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things, endures all things. It's, it's loving to bear with somebody else when they're difficult. You have anybody difficult in your life right now? Like, don't tell them right now. Yeah, it's you, okay? No, um, you're, you might be the difficult one. <laughs> Love bears with somebody else when they're difficult. It looks, it's, it's loving to bear with the weaknesses of others. It's loving to bear with or put up with somebody else's deficiencies. I like the way Leon Morris expressed it. He says, love conceals what is displeasing in another. It's an interesting way of putting it. Love conceals what's displeasing in another and doesn't drag it out into the pitiless light of public scrutiny. It conceals what's displeasing another. doesn't drag it out in the pitiless light of public scrutiny. That's what it looks like to bear all things in somebody else, not to point out the glaring weaknesses in somebody else, but to bear with them, conceal them, don't drag them out and don't expose where somebody else is weak. Love bears with. And, and you know, there's some of us who require more bearing with. <laughs> you know, maybe some of us smell bad or are loud and, and you can't get somebody to stop talking all the time. Maybe somebody's quiet and you feel like you can't get them to talk. Those are both weaknesses that God's calling us to bear with. And see, if we, if we don't pay attention to these little things, it's going to lead to the place where we become like the church in Corinth and we become just another statistic. And it takes active, continual efforts. Church, this is not something you can just have a one and done message on. This is something we actively need to focus on. Lord, how can we be a people who loves you and loves one another? Lord, how can we avoid conflict? How can we resolve conflict? Lord, how can we be a church that shows that we've been changed by your grace? And it requires putting up with somebody when they don't shut up. They won't stop talking. Maybe you're in your small group and you're frustrated with somebody else because they just won't talk and you're like asking them a question and they're like, yes. How God's worked, how, how, how's God working in your life right now? He's good. Okay, well that was, thanks very much. Then you're making things hard on me. You know, bear with the preferences of other people. Do we bear with people or do we become resentful and irritated? Love means that we have to bear with the weak consciences of others that a few weeks back in the series, we, we heard from Romans 14 and 15 about there are those who have weaker consciences, who, who think that you can't do certain things, you don't have certain freedoms in Christ. Do we bear with those who have weaker consciences, who have a preference in an area, think you need to dress a certain way, or think you need to eat a certain way, or not drink, or not smoke, or whatever it is? Do we bear with those? Or maybe on the flip side, do you bear with people who have a stronger conscience? Who are free to do everything and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't be around these people because it violates my conscience. But no, do we bear with them where scripture allows? Do we believe the best in, in people who have freedom in Christ or do we judge them and say that they're just being licentious? Do we believe all things? So much conflict, disunity, it arises when we aren't lovingly bearing with or putting up with the weaknesses and faults of others. And aren't you glad that God puts up with your faults, puts up with your weaknesses, puts up with your failings? When you're a jerk, God says, confess your sins. I'm faithful and just to forgive you and make you clean. Christ bears with us. He puts up with all of the annoying traits that we have. 
You know, God doesn't immediately correct everything in our lives. Isn't that really good? Because I don't think we could bear it. He bears up with some of those things. Now, God doesn't excuse our weaknesses. He's not excusing our sins. But God's exercising kindness. He's bearing with our weaknesses. He knows we're dust. He doesn't immediately correct us for everything. If he did, we'd be condemned. So let's bear with other people. We don't have to immediately correct all of everybody else's weaknesses, their misunderstandings. We don't have to immediately correct them when they have a weaker conscience in an area. We can bear with them. The other thing it says is that love believes all things. What does it mean that love believes all things? Does it mean that we're gullible? That we just say, well, I'm not going to believe there could be anything wrong here. I'm not going to believe there could be any bad here. I'm, I'm just going to be blind and, and, and not admit the truth. No, we're not called to be gullible Christians or stupid. But what he's talking about is it, it, believing the best in other people. It's not suspecting somebody else's motives. It's believing that they could have the right motives. Assuming the best in people. Believing the best in people. Believing that they didn't mean to offend you. They didn't mean to say something stupid. They, believing that they didn't even know they did. Love believes all things to begin with with people. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Are we actively seeking to, to believe the best about other people and their motives or to presume the worst about them? Do you ever read into things when people... Do things to offend you. They don't respond the way we want or they forget to write back when you text them or you email them or you Facebook them. Do you, do you assume they're angry with you? Do you assume motives? You, love believes all things. Maybe when you go by somebody else in church and they don't greet you, do you automatically think, they've got problems or they must be angry with me or they're being mean. They're hating me. Maybe they're just busy and distracted or maybe they're sick. Maybe something's on their mind. Maybe they're clueless. We're all clueless at times. Do you believe all things? Do you hope all things in the way you react and interact with people? Believing the best looks like not being offended when there's a perceived offense or slight. It, love believes all things. It's not to see, but love is always willing to give the benefit of the doubt. To those around them, and hopes all things, it hopes for change in others. You, you ever have you have somebody in your life who they, they don't seem like they're changing? Love hopes all things. Are you saying, you know what? My hope is not in their ability. My hope's in God's ability to change them. And I'm going to hope all things are possible. I'm going to hope that they're going to change. And I'm going to be consistently loving them because I'm going to hope that God uses this to change them. I'm going to hope God uses my love towards them. Love hopes that God will be at work in, in your life and lives of other people in the church. Love it really refuses to take somebody else's failures as final. You ever write somebody off in your mind? Like they just, they're screw ups or they're mess ups. They keep messing up in the same areas, so they're a failure. And, and you kind of pigeonhole them, right? Love doesn't do that. Love hopes all things. It refuses to write others off when they mess up as if God can't change them. Really? Because God changed you. He can change them too. Our weaknesses don't define us. We would never want our weaknesses to define us. Love hopes all things. We don't want to do the same thing to somebody else. Lastly, love endures all things. It's not a passive giving up. The word for endurance here, it really it, it speaks of an active refusal to give up. It's like the endurance of a soldier who is he's in the midst of a fight. When things are rough, he endures, he presses on. This is an active endurance. 
This is not just saying, oh, well, I'm going to endure them. No, this is, I'm going to actively seek to press on. I'm going to actively seek to love somebody in, in the midst of difficulty. So what, is, what does all of this have to do with, with living at peace together as disciples and community? Well, I think it has everything to do with it. The passage, yes, it was originally, originally written, in the, written in the midst of Paul addressing the Corinthians about their abuse of the spiritual gifts, but it was really their pride, their self-centeredness that, that led to conflict. It was severe lack of love that led to their conflict and the disagreements. If we are not approaching the normal conflicts and disagreements and differences of opinion and preferences that all of us face in our personal lives and in this church from desire to love God and love others, we're going to end up just like another statistic, just like another Corinthian church that is in desperate need of correction. So church, how do we do this? How do, how do we, how do we start to live like this? How do we, how do we live a life of love like this? It's not just moralism. This isn't just be loving. It has to start with a change of heart. The kind of love is, is really not possible unless God enables it. But thanks be to God that He does enable us to love like this. He doesn't ever give us a command like this. He doesn't tell us about what love looks like so that we can be condemned and think, I could never love like that. No, He says, I'm going to give you my love to transform you so that you can love others. If you're, if you're genuinely a Christian, you realize that it's impossible to do these things on your own without God. But that's not a cop-out. You see, the thing is, is that with God, all things are possible. God can transform self-centered, selfish people into people who love Him. How? Because of His great love for us. The thing we need to do is to, to remember, really, what love God ha- has had for us. When Paul was correcting the Corinthians, he started off in, in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2. You can flip back to there if you have your Bibles with you. Towards the beginning of the letter, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why did he do that? See, he wanted them to know the most important thing really was the message of the gospel, the good news that Christ came to love the unlovely. He came and sought us out. What's the most important message the church in Corinth needed to hear? It was the love that God has and had for them. Later on in chapter 15, Paul says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Why does he keep going? He starts off the book of Corinthians with that. He ends the book of Corinthians with that. He's in the middle of correcting them for all kinds of disunity, all kinds of problems, all kinds of disagreements, all kinds of abuses of the spiritual gifts. But he really wants them to... How do they change? What's their hope for change? What's the, what's the message they need to hear? It's that God so loved us that he sent his only son. That we who were the world, who were hating him... He said, I'm going to love those who are hating me and who don't deserve to be saved. I'm going to love the very people who are sinning knowingly against me. And so he sends his son and the love of Christ is what compelled him to 
to put up with humanity as he walked this earth, to endure punishment, to endure stupidity of his disciples. Jesus' love enabled him to endure getting beaten and whipped and scourged. and He endured a crown of thorns. He was hung on a cross for us. We need to see, the only way for us to love like this is to see that we too are undeserving. We too require the patience and the kindness of God. But God has exercised great kindness and patience with us. We need to see that every day we depend upon God's mercy and His patience, His long-suffering, His love for us. But that we can. That He loved us to the fullest. That He was humble. He didn't insist on His own way. Instead, He did everything that was for our good. You see, Christ's love is never failing for us. And that's the only way we're going to be able to love one another like this. If we've been changed by His love, we want to seek to, to grow in His love, to enjoy His love and express His love to others. And if, if you're struggling with loving other people, I'm going to point you back to the place that matters most. I want to point you back to Jesus and say, you need, to, you need to see his love for you. You need to see his kindness for you. You need to see his mercy for you. And as you see his kindness and mercy for you, God's going to use that to help you transform into a person that's able to love others in return. I'm going to ask the band to come up. I want to sing a couple songs in closing. Let's pray together as they're coming. Father, it is impossible on our own to live a life of love. But Lord, thank you that you lived a perfect life of love for us. That you've made us brand new. That you've given us new life and a new nature. That you've made us alive. That you will enable us and you promise that nothing will separate us from your love. God, thank you that you've promised to us that you will never leave us or forsake us. God, you've promised that you will be for us and not against us. Holy Spirit, you've promised to pray for us when we're too weak. So God, we, we want to look to you in hope, God. And I pray there be no condemnation this morning where there's been a lack of love, Lord. But I pray there be fresh faith and a fresh vision for loving others with the same love that you've loved us. And God, I pray that we'd all be affected by seeing your love for us in a fresh light. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand together.